Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a, a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to, to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, ill-treated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. I don't know if you've noticed, but there is a, a new phenomena in town. It's called cancel culture. Cancel culture. Cancel culture is whereby you lose your voice, and not because of an illness, but because people take it away from you. So you can be an author. You can be a, a film producer, you can be a comedian, you could be someone in the political field. You can be someone who's a prominent in society. And you can also fall uh, guilty to the cancel culture. Cancel culture is when what you say, what you write, um, what you think becomes unpalatable to some people. There are uh, unwritten rules and you cross the line. And therefore you are caricatured on social media predominantly you're caricatured in uh, print media and online uh, forums and platforms and because what you're saying is no longer palatable what you're saying is is said without nuance on social media that there's very quick and uh, abrupt justice the sentence is passed that what you're saying is passe you might have said it yesterday and someone who has a different opinion to you has caricatured you and said, this person needs to be silenced. This person is out of date. Have you heard what they said? That was just yesterday. You might have written something 30 or 40 years ago. And that too is un, uh, culturally sensitive. It's unpalatable and, and it's untrue in someone else's mind's eye. And so you're cancelled. The permission for you to perform, the permission for you to speak, the audacity you have for your books to be presented in bookstores is withdrawn. That's called cancel culture. It's very prevalent. It's very confrontational. 
in our society, and it's increasingly prevalent in the church as well. You may have heard of Franklin Graham. You may have heard of Jordan Peterson. You may have heard of J.K. Rowling. You may even have heard of Taylor Swift. And each one has been uh, fallen foul to uh, social media and their cancel culture. They've lost their voice. No longer can they speak. They've said something that's been out of step. They've crossed the invisible line. They've uh, fallen foul to the court of public opinion. And so now, rather than mercy for what they've said or understanding that they need, they've received swift and abrupt justice. But just imagine now you or I would feel if what we said yesterday was promoted to the court of public opinion. Can you imagine how you would feel? I would run. And that's just from yesterday. How about if everything you've ever said? Everything you've ever thought, every uh, move you ever made was recorded. And then uh, it was it was there for all to see. It wasn't just your family and friends. That would be enough shame for me to handle. But what about if it was for the whole world to analyze? What about if the whole world could dissect what you said and what you thought, the places where you went and the mistakes that you made? None of us wants to fall foul to cancel culture. We'd all be out of employment. We all wouldn't be able to say anything. We don't need council culture to thrive. We need mercy. We need mercy. That's what we long for. And this passage about a wonderful wedding banquet is about mercy. It's mercy in God's kingdom. It's written in chapter 21, verses 23 and verse 45. You can see that Jesus, Jesus is speaking to the religious elite. The religious elite have the audacity to say to Jesus, as he speaks to them again in chapter 22, verse 1, they say to Jesus, verse 23 of chapter 21, show us your authority. By what authority are you doing these things? It's a polite way of saying, how dare you? How dare you say these things? Who do you think you are, Jesus? How can you have the authority to say these things? I mean, Jesus, we have reached the top table. We are part of the religious elite. We've arrived here by merit. We live in a, in a meritocracy. If you work hard, if you do enough good, if you go to the right places, if you give enough money, if you read the right books, then God will be pleased with you. And Jesus says, no. Let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a parable about the banquet. Because he says in chapter 22, verse 1, speaking to them again, I want to tell you about my kingdom. I want to tell you about what it's like to live under my loving rule. It is not a meritocracy. It's a mercyocracy. If it was a car, it would be running on the fuel of mercy. It's a mercyocracy. And Jesus says, I need to explain to you what mercy is. I need to explain to you about this, uh, this new culture in my kingdom that runs on mercy. Here's how you get it. Mercy. Mercy is a call. Mercy is a covering. Mercy is a feast. Mercy is a call, a covering, and a feast. Let's look at the first one. It's on the screen in front of you. Mercy from verses 1 to 5. Mercy is a call. Look at uh, verses 1 to 5 really quickly that the king, the king who has a son, is going to throw a huge banquet, a huge feast. This is not uh, something to be compared with anybody else. This is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And, and so he sends out messengers because it's time. It's time, verse 3. Let me read it to you. 
the king, he sent out his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come. Now notice carefully, these people had already been invited. He wasn't inviting them again. He was saying, now is the time for you to come true on your promise, to come true on your commitment because you said you would come. I've laid a place for you. There's your name tag in front, the, the fake little bottle of uh, bubblies that turns into bubbles that I got from Poundland or somewhere more luxurious. It's there. The Polaroid camera is in front of you in the middle of the table for you to record your special day. They're prepared. Everything is ready. I've hired the caterers. The, the marquee is made up. Everything is ready. Now is the time to come, just like you said you would. But why is he inviting them again? Well, in the first century, a little bit similar to now, it would have taken a long time to prepare a wedding feast, a banquet. It would have taken days to come. It would have taken a long time to journey. You couldn't get on an airplane. You couldn't get on a bus. Time would have been having to be allowed for the journey to be made from your home, wherever you lived in whatever country, to the banquet. It took weeks to prepare, it took days to arrive to, and the banquets would not just be a one-day affair that uh, can feel so pressured when you're organising a wedding. The banquet itself would last for days, so hours, if not months, if not longer, to prepare this banquet. So that's why the king sends out the messengers to say, you said you were going to come, I've laid the table, I've got everything in place, now is the time for you to begin your journey and to come to my feast. Notice there are people that have already said yes, and so it's time to get dressed, it's time to get your glad rags on, and it's time to come. But you would have heard, as the Bible was read so clearly by Colin and Wai Fong, that when the time came for them to come, they said no. Jesus is talking to this a group of religious insiders. He's talking to people who know their Bible and who think God operates on the principles of merit. There is a ladder where the great people get into God's kingdom and the bad people never do. The people who have worked hard to accrue credit and merit, God will be pleased with them. Those who haven't, God will not be pleased with them. So Jesus is not speaking to religious outsiders. He's speaking to the religious elite, to the religious insiders who don't understand how God's kingdom works. But let's not talk about them, let's talk about us. Maybe, maybe you've become a Christian. Maybe you've been to church many, many times. Maybe you've even taken communion. Maybe you've got baptized. Maybe you pray every day. But are you sat down at the king's table? You've heard his call and you've answered. But are you rejoicing in him? Are you rejoicing in his love? Do you know the smile from his face? Do you know the warmth of his affections towards you? Are, are you rejoicing in joy at all that God has won for you in the wonderful sacrificial death of his son, Jesus? That's what it means in this passage. These people said they were coming, but they decided not to come. And the question you should be asking is, why? at verse 5 in your Bibles. Why don't they come? These people were landowners, they were business people, and they decided not to come. The answer is in verse 5. They looked at what the king was offering, 
They considered the, uh, the cost of the journey and the difficulty of the journey. They looked at what they had and they said, no, we're not going to come. They saw what was offered, a feast, a banquet that would take days. And they said, no, we don't want to come. We'd rather stay with what we've got. So they were indifferent. They were indifferent, as you can see on the screen, to what the king was was offering. Look at verse 6. So what happens? They're, they're not just indifferent. The temperature rises when the king sends his servants. As the servants come, they're seized, they're mistreated, and they're killed. There's lots of parallels to the parable of the tenants from last week. So they, they receive the invitation, not just in the post, but from a person. And they say, this is our opportunity to mistreat, to do harm to, and then kill the king's servants in verse 7. And so this is the picture that Jesus is painting to the religious elite. This is what my kingdom is like. You can say you're coming. You may have given your verbal assent in a formal way, but on the inside, there's no feasting. On the inside, there's no joy. On the inside, there's no delighting and satisfaction. There's no coming. You said you'd come, but when the time comes for you to come to me, you refuse. This is not uh, indifference. It's more than that. It's actually a way of saying, I don't want anyone to have supreme influence. I don't want anyone to have control over my life. I, I think I want to obey the call, but when the push comes to shove, when it becomes a challenge, when it becomes an either or, I'm going to choose or, not either. Do you see the forcefulness of what Jesus is saying in this parable? This is the kingdom of heaven. This is what it's like to live in my mercyocracy. Anyone who comes to me, in fact, the only way to come to me is to come if you've received a call. These people don't come, they refuse. Later on, there are people who come, who've received the call by surprise, and they arrive with joy and feasting. But Jesus is saying from this parable, the way into the kingdom of heaven, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 22 of Matthew's gospel, is you must have accepted an invitation, you must have received a call. You must have heard my voice and you must respond to it. You may think when you become a Christian, at least for the first few weeks or months, that it's your idea. I've always wanted a relationship with God and so I decided to become a Christian. But then very quickly you decide it wasn't your idea at all. It's God who does all the work. It's God who is at work in your heart before you ever had the idea to come to him god by his spirit warms your heart he sensitizes your spirit in a new way so that you realize what you've done and so you cry out to jesus for mercy and then you start a new living relationship with him you've been adopted as a son and daughter of the king the future is no longer a place of fear for you it's a place of joy and satisfaction as you look forward to no matter what comes you know that god will be with you and death is no longer to be feared it's just the shadowlands to greater glory and joy when you see him face to face i thought i came to god on my own efforts my own merits but actually i understand now that jesus rescued me it's all because of his mercy and grace let me press this a bit further. There's a warning here and there's a comfort. God, as the king of the universe, is patient. 
God is the banquet hoster is patient, but don't take him for granted. You should never become a Christian without counting the cost, without looking at the small print. There's nothing to hide. It's costly to become a Christian, but there's great joy and there's great reward and there's great satisfaction that you can find nowhere else but solely in Jesus. So there is a cost. And so you want to read the small print. You want to look and understand who the person of Jesus claims to be. But don't wait forever. God is patient, but there is a time for you to become a Christian. There's a call that you need to hear. You, uh, well, just imagine someone is throwing a banquet. It might look like this, that there's an invitation that you receive to a lovely meal. By this picture, you can see that I'm not a vegan and I'm not a vegetarian. But just imagine someone invites you around for a meal. It's tonight. They, they say, look, I, I've got this great meal. I've cooked some wonderful steak. There's some great red wine to go with it. So I've got some advice. and It's the perfect wine. It's a Shiraz from Australia to go with this great piece of meat. I'm salivating, just thinking at the thoughts. It's a great meal. And you receive the invitation and you say, uh, I can come, but I can come next week. But just imagine if I'd cooked the meal or if you've cooked the meal. Whether you're a vegetarian or not, it might look different, but you've prepared a meal, you've invited someone and they say, they respond, yeah, I'll come, but I'll come next week or maybe I'll come next month. I can make it next month. Just save the meal for next month. You think, what are you, are you kidding me? The meal's ready. It's going to be ready tonight. Why don't you come? I've made it just for you. Look at the expense I've gone to. Look at the care I've taken. It's just for you. You wouldn't put your friend off, would you? You might cancel something else. You might stop and pause the, uh, the box set binge session that you're going through in lockdown because in a social distance meal, you want to go and have the meal with your friend. Consider the invitation. You wouldn't put them off. Now, consider who makes this invitation. This parable is about a king. The king is God who's made all the running, he's made all the preparations, he's sent you his son who's the servant, and he invites you to come. Just imagine how you should respond to your friend who invites you around for a lovely meal. Now just look at this picture and remember who the king is. The king of the cosmos invites you to come. Not round his house for a lovely meal with a great bottle of wine that just complements the meal perfectly. This is the king who created the universe and who sustains it with a word of authority and power and might. You wouldn't put off an invitation to Buckingham Palace, would you? And so you should not put off the invitation of the king. It's the king who calls you, the king who makes and sustains the cosmos says, will you come and have a meal with me? I've made all the preparations. I've paid all the costs. I've assessed all the risks. Come and come today. Some of you need to hear that call. It's urgent. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. Why not respond to the king if he's calling you today? Mercy. Mercy always comes through a call. It's a call that you need to respond to. But mercy, secondarily, mercy is also a covering. Mercy is a covering. Look at the king. There are two groups of people. Verses 1 to 10 is a unit. Verses 11 through 14 is a very interesting appendix. You might have noticed that. But look at the king and the first group of people. I mean, does the king 
who owns the banquet, who's made the preparations, who's put up the marquee, does he change his standards? Verse 5 says, the people who the king invited were landowners and business owners. They, they were important people. They had resources. They were people of standing. They were respectable people. Now look at verse 8. If you look at verse 8 and following, look at the, look at the different band of people that the king invites to come to the banquet. He says literally in verse 8, let's go out now to the street corners. See, he says literally, there's a phrase in verse 8, let's go to the way. I want you to go, servants, to the way that the ways cross. Now look, the Romans know how to build. They know how to build a road. Maybe they should uh, come back and help us sort out our potholes, but more of that later. The Romans knew how to build a road. And when there was a city, an ancient city that they conquered, like Jerusalem, they would, they would put in some roads. You don't need roads to be wide like the M25, that permanent car park that circumnavigates London. But roads don't need to be long or wide, but they do need to be straight and they do need to be direct. And so the Roman roads would be straight through the countryside, connecting the major cities that they conquered. But as the road hit the outside of the city, in the Roman world, it, the road would, would span out and it would be like, a, it'd be like an intersection where, where the roads from the city, from the different cities would come and connect to Jerusalem. And, and with that in one's mind's eye, Jesus was saying, that's where the king sent his servants. He went to the outside, to, to the dusty streets where they gathered outside the city gate, outside the city wall. That's not where the posh people gathered. That's where everyone gathered. People with different colored skin, people from different places, people from different social strata, people who looked and sounded different. Rich and poor, every ethnicity would have been there. Economic, social, moral diversity would have been experienced there. And the servant comes and says, I want you to come to a banquet. This is not a meal. This is a banquet. This is a feast. Anybody can come. Anybody at all, says the king. It's absolutely free. It's going to be absolutely wonderful. And then verses 11 to 14, you get this strange appendix that's, that's kind of hard and offensive for us to understand. The king uh, enters into this new setting with the respectable people no longer there because they said no. And the unrespectable people, they were right in the midst of it. They're enjoying this wonderful banquet of feast the light they could never imagine, the likes of which they could only look in upon. And the king in his splendor, in his regalia, he sees an uninvited guest. Verse 12, why don't you have the right clothes on? And the speechlessness of the uninvited guest is absolutely key. I mean, there are two reasons you wouldn't have a, a wedding garment on. One is uh, you didn't ever have a chance to go home. Like the poor people who were gathered in, the unrespectable people who were drawn in. They didn't have a chance to go home and get a wedding garment, but neither did they own one. So there's two reasons there. Couldn't go home or because you didn't own one. But this person says none of these things as the king asks him this question. Up in verse three and four, the invited guests had a heads up, they had a warning, they had time to prepare themselves, but they looked at the cost-benefit analysis of going and they said no, and they treated the king's servants so brutally. 
But look at verse 10 with the second group of people. The servants went out into the streets, gathered all the people in. There wasn't time to make reservations. There wasn't time to make preparations. They came right in off the dusty streets into this wonderful banquet hall. The table was laid out before them. None of them could have gone home and made preparations to dole themselves up, to put on their best clothes because they wouldn't have owned them. None of them would have been, in fact, all of them would have been so poor, none of them would have had resources to have that sort of clothing anyway. What's the point when you live on the street? And so the king must have paid all the expenses he must have prepared and had resources himself, whatever the cost, to clothe the second group of people that his servants brought into his banquet. He must have prepared them. Or verse 11, the man wouldn't have been the odd one out. The poor, the marginalized, the lowly who were invited in, they were the invited guests who the king clothed in his splendor. Verse 11, this man must have come in by another means. Notice his silence. He didn't have a chance to go home and get one. He didn't have the resources, but he didn't receive a call. He was a a wedding crasher. I know there's been a film. I know it's pretty funny, apparently. But this is not. This is serious. This is a, a person who's come into the banquet hall by another route, by another means, and has not received the covering of mercy, has not received the clothes that the king bestows. Remember verse 2, the kingdom of heaven is being described to a religious elite who think they can get into the kingdom by merit. And God says, no, it's mercy. It's mercy you, you hear with a call. It's mercy that you receive, and it's a covering for your shame. It's a covering for your sin. It's a a covering for your second-classness. You don't come in to my banquet hall, to my feast, without hearing the call and without receiving mercy as a covering. Because my kingdom is not a meritocracy. It's a mercyocracy. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank. It doesn't matter what your standing is. All you need is mercy. All you need to come into this feast is to admit that you have nothing to offer. You don't get in by looking right. You don't get in by being fit enough. Your unfitness is the qualification that you need for entry. That's that's all you need is to see that you don't belong. And that means that you do belong by God's mercy and through the grace of his beloved son. You don't earn a place in this kingdom. Jesus is teaching the religious elite. It's not merit. It is mercy. God accepts everybody. He's trusted in his son. You don't earn your place in the kingdom. God does not love people unconditionally. There is a condition and his son has met it. There is justice that's required, not at the hands of the unruly Twitter brigade, who are the fuel for cancel culture. But there is the justice of God that needs to be dealt with for our sin and for our deliberate and intentional rebellion and for our careless rebellion that Dave prayed so helpfully for. And so until you see that you don't belong, until you see that you can't get in by your own efforts, 
you don't belong. But the minute you see that Jesus has paid the price, he died in your place, he displays God's grace and is the demonstration of God's mercy, that God's wrath is poured out on his son so that you can enter into the feast, that you're clothed in the, in the goodness, in the perfect record, in the righteousness of Jesus, then and only then can you enter in, into his mercyocracy, his kingdom of mercy. And how do you know that you've received the mercy of God, that you've been obedient to the call, that you're clothed in his righteousness? Because you're thrilled at what he's done. You're amazed at what he's done. It, it's not become old hat to you. C.A. Spurgeon was a great preacher in the, uh, in the 19th century. And he says, uh, I want you to imagine, he was speaking on this passage. He says, I want you to imagine two groups of people at, at a banquet. You can see it on the screen. He has, he has this sermon where he was teaching on Matthew 22. And he says, you know what? You always want beggars at your feast. I mean, the prim and proper ladies sit there like this. Here comes the food and they say, hmm, isn't this lovely? Isn't this delectable? Isn't this delightful? Look at the quality of this cut glass and so on. You want beggars at your banquet. He says the beggars, they cheer every dish. Can you imagine the beggars? Here comes another dish. Look at that. Look at the size of the turkey. Look at how many roast potatoes there are. Look at the pavlova. It's gorgeous. Look at the fruit. Look at the vegetarian or <laughs> option. Isn't it gorgeous? I struggled there, but by means of uh, differentiation, we'll use that word in case you're vegetarian. Hooray for the turkey. Isn't it amazing, says the beggars. They're amazed at the grace and the provision and the goodness and the generosity and the kindness of the king. They don't earn it. They don't deserve it. And they see how wonderful it is. That's the sign that you've received the mercy of God. That it is amazing grace to you. That you're in awe at what God has done for you. You've earned nothing. You deserve condemnation. You've received mercy and you're sat at the king's table. He's paid for everything. You deserve nothing and you receive everything. That's grace and it's so offensive to us. But it's also so amazing to us. And that's the sign that you understand the mercy of God. You say, wow, at the goodness of God. And you sense and grow in the sweetness of God as you reflect on his mercy and grace. Do you take God's mercy for granted? If you do, that's a warning sign that you've become over familiar with the goodness and the provision of the king. See, mercy is not just a sentiment. It's not just something you understand. It's something that's life-changing. It's a call and it's a covering. Finally, it's a feast, really quickly. It's a feast. What's intriguing about this unique parable is what it shows us is the person that gets thrown out is not the bad person. It's not the lowly person. It's not the, the person who's low in society. It's not the person who doesn't fit. Jesus is speaking, verse 23, verse 45 of chapter 21 of Matthew's gospel. He's speaking to the people who think they've got it all sorted by their merits, by their efforts. God, God's just relieved to have their presence because they're so great. 
What's interesting is this parable, the parable of the wedding banquet, shows that it's not the outsiders who, who don't get into the kingdom of heaven. It's the people who think they're insiders. It's the people who think they're good enough for God. They're the ones who are, they're the ones who are the wedding crashes. They're the ones who won't get in. It's uh, the religious elite who can't see the need for forgiveness. They think they can cover their sins and their wrongdoings. They think that uh, they'll be seated by their own efforts. They've got to be satisfied with what they've done. And Jesus is challenging us afresh to say, it's not your good deeds that please me. Your good deeds can get in the way. You need to repent. You need to say sorry for your, what you've done wrong and for what you've done right. It's not merit. It's mercy. We live in a mercyocracy, says Jesus. I mean, we think if we work really hard, then God owes us. If we pray hard enough, then we can twist God's arm to heal someone who's so sick and near death in our lives. But until you see your unfitness, that you're a beggar who's called in by mercy, you're an outsider who's brought in by grace, you're an outsider who's brought in by God's sheer sheer mercy that reaches out and rescues us. Until you see that, or when you do see that, there will be a joy in your spirit. But there's a joy, a great, the best wedding you've ever been to. That's just a foretaste of heaven. There is feasting in heaven. There is joy in heaven because you're with the one that you love and you're with the one that's loved you to the uttermost. It's a call. It's a covering and it's a feast. Every other religion, every other philosophy say it's merit. And Jesus says, no, it's mercy. It's so countercultural. So have you become, if you're a Christian, have you become over familiar with the grace of God? Do you think you deserve to be in? Do you think that you're quite respectable, actually? This parable says no. It's not of merit. It's all of mercy. Why don't you pray afresh if you're in danger of becoming over familiar with these, if you've lost the wonder of grace? Why don't you pray? Pray like you mean it. And pray like this to say, God, I, I know that it's of mercy, but I don't feel it. Help me to feel the joy and the wonder of what I felt the first day I believed. I know that I deserve to be outside, but now I'm inside by your son. Please give me fresh joy. Give me a fresh sense of what it means to be accepted, not by my merit, by your grace. Because to come into the kingdom, you need to hear God's call. You need to know that you're covered by God's grace. And then you see with joy that the kingdom of God is a feast with God at the center. And you're invited to that feast this morning.